Let's step back for just a moment in history. It's the late 1700s, and I don't think there's anyone here that was quite familiar with that time. It was the late 1700s, and as this nation was being born, one of the things that they believed was that its economic future and its national security was going to be based on finding a water trade route to the Pacific Ocean. And everybody, all the cartographers, the map makers, the historians, and everyone believed that there was a water route that existed up the Mississippi, across the Missouri River, and that eventually it would, it would connect with the Columbia River to the Pacific Ocean. And this route was vital to national security and the economic future. In 1804, then, Thomas Jefferson, the president, commissioned Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery to go find that water route. To go find it. And so they set out. They set out and they began their journey and for 15 months they moved west. This route was so important that twice Spain, another country, sent a contingent after them to kill them and wipe them out, hoping they would never find that water route. But after 15 months of traveling, a month just going around the falls in Great Falls, Montana, Lewis and a small scouting party stood at the headwaters of the Missouri River. Let's see if this is going to work. There we go. At the headwaters of the Missouri River. They believed that at the headwaters, that they were going to walk up a small pass, and on the other side of that pass, they were going to find the Columbia River. And once they found the Columbia River, they were going to then put their canoes in and their keelboats and move swiftly to the Pacific Ocean. When they went over the pass, what they discovered, okay, we're going to have technical problems. Okay. They discovered the Rocky Mountains. Now, I want you to think about this. The Rocky Mountains. How many of you have seen the Rocky Mountains? Okay, good. How many of you have seen the Appalachian Mountains? Okay, let's see if it works here. All right. The Appalachian Mountains look like that. The core of discovery, Lewis and Clark were from the east. The only experience they had was with the Appalachian Mountains. So when they heard that there were mountains ahead, and they had heard, they had no mental framework to make sense of them. They thought the Rocky Mountains were going to be these nice, warm, colorful, bald, big hills in light of the Rockies that they were going to have to cross. Instead, they encountered that. They had no framework for that. They were traveling by water. They were traveling with canoes. 
life was not going to be the same. The future for them was not going to be like the past. It just was not. They would have to adapt. And the journey that was before them became even more volatile, more uncertain, more complex, and more ambiguous. They had no idea how they were going to get across the mountains. But that is another story for another time. But the core of discovery with Lewis and Clark was in uncharted territory. They lacked the skills, they lacked the ability, and they lacked the equipment. And yet, and yet they were successful. They eventually made it to the Pacific Ocean. But navigating uncharted territory is incredibly difficult because one cannot rely on existing knowledge and skills. It requires the people in the core, even back then, to make a shift in their values and their expectations, their attitudes, their habits, and their behaviors. I want you to think about this. The future will not be like the past. Navigating uncharted territory, places we've not been before. I want you to think about that as we reflect on the birth of Christ. Because the birth of Christ is critical to the church and that we wrestle with what it means for navigating uncharted territory. Now, uncharted territory is a strange thing. It may not feel like we are uncharted territory. It, we, like Lewis and Clark, may be interpreting things around us all wrong or in ways that are helpful or saying that things are well. We may even lack the mental map sometimes to make sense of what's taking place around us. The reality is, though, that the Church of Jesus Christ has been, currently is, and probably will always be in uncharted territory. But let me explain that uncharted territory that we find ourselves in at this time. It looks like this. The role and place of the church in our society and culture is in a very different place than it was 10, 15, and sometimes even five years ago. The church throughout history, and since Christianity became the official religion of Rome by Emperor Constantine in 313, has been respected generally for its moral and its civil voice in society. Even those people who did not believe what the church taught respected its role and its place in society and culture. It was an anchor point. It had a moral voice. It spoke for civility. It proclaimed Christ. And even though they didn't believe, they respected its role and its place. We are in a very different place right now. In many ways, the church is no longer the center of society. It is no longer the central building in the downtown square. It is being pushed to the margins of society. The church is being viewed not as having a moral voice, but as being moralistic. 
Not as bringing civility to the discourse, but being divisive and partisan. And as we've seen this shift, what we also see is that there's an increasing percentage of our population and of our people in our communities who have never even darkened the door of a church. Except for maybe a funeral or a wedding. They will say things like this. I visited a church once and I thought I was going to catch on fire. They have no way to make sense of it. They don't have the mental maps or the image to understand what is going on around them. And unfortunately for us, the Christian story, the biblical story, the true story of the world has often been co-opted by consumerism and Easter bunnies. So how does a church fulfill its mission in this kind of context? How do you hold tightly to the gospel and adapt in order to navigate this uncharted territory? Let's explore this briefly this morning through the first few verses of Mark's gospel. Reading from Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey and this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. He saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him into the desert, and he was in the desert for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. This is the word of the Lord. One of the things that has always intrigued me about Mark's gospel is that it lacks a birth narrative. It has always intrigued me. Now, Mark's gospel is important in the sense that it was most likely written by John Mark, and John Mark received most of the accounts of what he wrote about from Peter. But still, the, the, the silence about the birth of Christ is actually puzzling. And in Mark's gospel, what we find is we find a story after story <coughs> about Jesus and his ministry. The transitions are abrupt. They are quick. The stories are told rapidly, one after another. But even as Mark moves through these stories, the lack 
of a birth narrative, which is puzzling, may help us understand the future, the, the character of the future that we face. Mark provides us with a picture of Jesus' birth as it would have been viewed by the larger culture. Again, Mark provides us a picture of Jesus' birth, of how it would have been viewed by the larger culture, which is basically, it was a non-event. It was unnoticed. Nobody cared. Nobody cared that a young woman became pregnant miraculously and had a baby. As a matter of fact, the only people who may have cared at that moment when Jesus was born would have been mom and dad, Mary and Joseph, Mary and Zechariah, perhaps the three wise men, depending on how long it was between the birth and when they showed up, and the shepherds in the field. Those were all the people that cared that Jesus was born. The reality is, in Jerusalem, in Bethlehem, in Rome, and throughout the known world at the time, it was a non-event. And on top of that, Mark is writing to Christians who are living in Rome. And to, and to realize how, how significant it is, please remember that Mark begins his gospel this way. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Those words, the first sentence of the gospel of Mark, would have been blasphemous in Rome. Not blasphemous to God, but in Rome, there was only one Lord, and that was Caesar. So to be found with this text, to profess publicly that Jesus was Lord, meant simply this. You were probably going to be killed. The cost was very high. And they lived with this weight every, every day. Mark's gospel frames it this way, with this question. Who is Jesus? And Mark boldly claims, Jesus is the Son of God. This opening statement is a direct threat to Caesar's position. It knowingly puts Christians at risk. Persecution was a very real possibility, a risk that many of the brothers and sisters in Christ continue to live with this day. But you see, Jesus' birth is significant in Mark. It just unfolds in a very different way. The territory that Mark is having to navigate with the Christians in Rome is incredibly different than the territory that Mark, that Matthew and Luke are writing to. They are navigating uncharted territory, trying to figure out how do you faithfully follow Christ in a setting where to profess Christ is certain death. Not ostracization, not becoming the brunt of a bad joke, but the cost of following Christ and declaring Jesus as Lord, if it comes to the attention of the Roman authorities, is death. And they are walking uncharted territory. And Mark lays out this uncharted territory this way there's an announcement. The central theme of the book, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he does not shy back. The second 
The second point is that Jesus' coming was expected. He cites the prophet Isaiah who quotes Michael. You may not have expected it, people in Rome. You may not have known what was happening in history. You may not have been familiar with the Old Testament, but Jesus Christ has shown up and his coming was expected whether you knew it or not. And how do we know it was expected? Because God sent a herald named John to prepare the way. Now, a herald would have been a common thing. Rome, Caesar did just not go and walk the streets. A herald went out before and declared his presence and cleared the way. A herald, if a, a dignitary comes to visit us, doesn't just show up. He's led by a police escort, and we are all inconvenienced by his presence. So John was this herald. He came saying, there is one coming after me who is greater than me. Now again, an interesting herald. He's baptizing people. People are coming to him and confessing their sins. Something spiritually is a work. I don't think the Christians in Rome knew a lot about that because they hadn't experienced it. But John came baptizing, proclaiming the coming of Christ and says, there is one coming after me whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That in itself is worthy of several sermons. But what we do know this is John's baptism got you wet. Jesus' baptism included the Holy Spirit. And so, again, think about the Christians in Rome. They would have only known about the Holy Spirit if they'd been taught by Peter or Paul or someone about who the Holy Spirit was. And it's the only way they could make sense of it. And then the fourth part of this passage that we read this morning is that Jesus goes out to temptation. When God shows up, there is always opposition. Satan tempts Jesus. Jesus does not succumb, but opposition is to be expected. And so even though Mark's gospel doesn't lack a birth narrative, it provides interesting and rich insight into both the past and the challenges of navigating the future. I want to hit two of those this morning. I think first is, we want to note in Mark's gospel, and this is what I like about Mark's gospel, I love Mark's gospel, is the simple fact that this, in the beginning, God breaks into his world. He breaks in. God shows up at an unexpected time in Bethlehem in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God had shown up at Sinai. God had shown up at lots of places in the Old Testament. But God shows up when he wants to. And God, who is the creator and the sustainer of the world, breaks in to the world one more time in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He will break into the world again at Jesus' death and his resurrection. He continues to break into our world through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. And he will break in finally at the second coming. God's timing is his own. It is not the timing of the Jewish leaders. It is not the timing of Rome. It is not the timing of anyone else. It is God's timing. And whenever God breaks into the world, Mark helps us to understand that we will always, always be met with opposition. Be opposed by Satan. Jesus was born and within two years was opposed by the Roman ruler, Herod, who wanted to kill all the babies two years in Angu. He was met with opposition at his crucifixion when the Roman government and the Jewish leaders turned against him. 
Opposition is to be expected. But Mark informs us that Jesus will baptize us with the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit prays for us, illumines God's Word, convicts us, and transforms us. It assists us in envisioning how God is at work through the gospel. And see, here is the beauty of it all. The beauty of it all is the Holy Spirit transforms us. When we look throughout the scriptures, and particularly the New Testament, one of the questions is, what kind of person, what kind of people are you becoming? What kind of people are you becoming? Are you becoming a people who do good things to earn God's favor? Which is impossible because God's favor has been secured for us in Jesus Christ. Or do you do good things out of gratitude for what God has done for you? Are you putting on the characteristics of patience, of peace, of joy, of long-suffering? All those characteristics of God that he demonstrates towards us in and through Christ. How are we being transformed? And perhaps one of the ways that God is most disruptive today is through the transformation of his people into the image of Christ. Because we serve, because God is the great king. And he is superior to all earthly rulers. His kingship is established and it will become a lived reality, the second coming. But God breaks in at any time, in any place, in any way, and he always disrupts. Second, when the Corps of Discovery stood at Lima Pass and saw the Rocky Mountains, they realized that the future would not be like the past. Most of us live under the illusion that the future will be like the past. It'll be a continuation. But think about this. In my short lifetime, in my short lifetime, I remember in sixth grade visiting the insurance company, the National Life of Vermont, with my uncle who worked there in Montpelier, Vermont. One of the coolest things at the insurance company was the mainframe computer the mainframe computer. And he took me into this secure room, this clean room, with all sorts of lights and things buzzing and turning and all sorts of things going on. And he looked at me and he said, this is the future. And I suspect at that time his mental map was a lot of clean rooms with a lot of big mainframes. I won't tell you how old I am now, but aged a few years. This little digital thing in my pocket probably has more power and more storage than that mainframe did that I saw in sixth grade. We may think that the future is going to be consistent with the past, but the reality is that there are disruptive things that come in that remind us again and again it will not be like the past. And that becomes unnerving. It becomes disconcerting. But if we, if we recognize this, that God breaks in, he disrupts, he turns things upside down, he calls us into new kinds of relationships, 
He summons us to see our preferences as our preferences and to hold them lightly. And then he disrupts us and messes with us because he loves us and wants us to experience his grace so that we're dependent on him. You see, God invites us into a life that expects persecution. A life that is focused on what it means to follow Christ faithfully in a changing world. And the reality is that God gives us the grace to adapt to the challenges ahead with an uncompromising commitment to the historic gospel of Jesus Christ. But how do we adopt, or adapt, I should say, to the changing role of church and society? Well, one way is simply this, to yell louder. Or if we were to do the core of discovery, they could have hit the Rocky Mountains and said, you know what? We've never seen anything like this. We've never navigated anything like this. We're actually canoe people. So we're going to go back down river and we're going to practice canoeing. And we're just going to practice our canoeing and do what we've always done, hoping that somehow the Rocky Mountains will go away. The changes won't be there. The question the church of Jesus Christ has always faced is how is it going to adapt to the changing culture and society around it while maintaining its integrity being anchored in the gospel? Yelling louder won't do. And just as in Jesus' time, we find ourselves often in a volatile environment. A volatile environment where we're afraid or we're fearful to speak up for Christ because of how people will react. We don't talk about religious things at parties because, well, you just don't. Why is that? It's uncertain times. We don't know how to make sense of the things around us, of what's going on and the changes that are happening. And how do we navigate these things? They're complex. There's no simple solution. There's just none. There's not a silver bullet. People often say to me, we need to get more people here. I'm like, okay, that's a good thing. How? Well, we need to do this thing. And if we do this thing, guess what? People will come. How many of you believe that? No one? Huh. The situation is complex. How do we walk through? How do we navigate? How do we help make sense of the world around us? It is incredibly complex and ambiguous. What may work well one time doesn't work well. What doesn't work well may work well. We never know. But what will the future look like? John the Baptist, the disciples, wrestled with this question throughout the New Testament. The church has wrestled with it throughout its history. Navigating uncharted territory is hard work. But it must be grounded in these four things from the Gospels. There has to be an unwavering commitment to the Gospel, to the Gospel of Jesus Christ, that we serve a risen Lord and we are committed to that truth and to that truth working out and transforming us. We're inviting other people into a journey, not on our terms, not on their terms, but on God's terms. And God's terms are pretty open and broad and welcoming, and they're also transformative. An unwavering commitment to the gospel. 
Second thing, it requires us to be adaptive. Not necessarily relying on what we've done in the past, but looking at what new opportunities may present themselves. And being adaptive always involves change, and change always involves loss. People are not upset by change. They're upset by the loss that change represents. And often people don't know how to articulate that. An interesting story. Church, California, of course, decided to use PowerPoint. An individual came up to the pastor and he said this, you're using the wrong font. And the pastor was like, we're just using the fonts they gave us. It's a fine font. We've done everything in this font. I don't understand. And so a couple more weeks went by and the individual came up to McGammon after the service and said, pastor, you're still using the wrong font. Haven't you read the articles by Microsoft? Pastor looked at the PowerPoint and said, hmm, looks fine to me. Well, the individual became increasingly frustrated. And finally, one Sunday, he came up to the pastor and he said, Pastor, you're using the wrong font. And the pastor, also exasperated by this ongoing conversation that seems to be going nowhere, says, well, I don't understand. And the man said, I cannot read the PowerPoint. And the pastor stopped. And said, what? I cannot read the PowerPoint. And what he found out was that as you get older, as some of us are, it's more difficult to read a sans serif font because the lines and things that go with it, it becomes blurry. And this gentleman's eyesight had declined to the point that he could not read the font. He was upset. He was upset because he lost the ability to read the music. It didn't have anything really to do with the font at all. He just didn't know how to articulate it. And so the response of the church to adapt, and this is to say, and the pastor says, we did it. We went back and we, we studied fonts and we changed we spent hundreds of dollars changing fonts on hundreds of PowerPoint songs and slides and things we had developed. Because it is important for us that our people are able to read. Being adaptive, will, being adaptive means that we're exposing ourselves to new challenges and new risk. It just does. They took a risk with PowerPoint. They found out that it didn't work well for one gentleman. To be adaptive is a new challenge, it's a new risk, and you continue in that cycle of being adaptive. And you see, you're able to do that if you're walking as a community. And community is actually essential. There has to be an investment in the community, in the life of the community. It's a two-way street. We have to share the load. And sharing the load often puts a demand on the church of Jesus Christ.
But the reality is this. No one gets left behind. Grandma, great-grandma always comes with us. She may not come with us or he may not come with us happily, but we will always pause as a community to bring everyone along, even those who come forward reluctantly. Because we are part of the body of Christ. And the reality through this is, is that everyone will be changed. If we think about the disciples of Jesus Christ and how they were changed under Jesus' ministry, as we think of the stories and the testimonies of how people's lives have been transformed by the gospel, as we navigate, as we navigate the culture around us, we will, we will be changed. Mark helps us understand this. That God breaks in. God breaks in when God wants to break in in the ways that God wants to break in. And as God breaks in, the future will not be like the past. And we are called to walk faithfully into the future, dependent on his love and his grace and his mercy as we strive to demonstrate the integrity of the gospel in a world and in a broader culture that wants to push us to the margins. Let us pray. Gracious Father, may we be a people who are dependent on you, who experience your grace and who experience your mercy, who expect you to break into our world, to do marvelous things, and to transform us so that we go forward dependent on you, bringing the light of the gospel to bear on those around us and on each other's lives as the Holy Spirit transforms us in the image of Christ. And we go forth as a living testimony of the gospel of grace. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.